Father in heaven, as we open up your word here today in Romans 2, I pray that you would speak to all of us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the truth that it proclaims that your son Jesus is the rightful judge. And uh, Lord, we pray that that would both uh, challenge us and call us to draw near to you. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this week I was disheartened to read in Christianity Today about yet another scandal involving a high-profile Christian minister, someone whose career I really admired, a recently deceased pastor, global speaker, and best-selling author. I won't mention his name because the story is still under investigation, but I will say the details don't look good. Now, what are we to make of these stories? I mean, this guy was impressive, If you did a random sampling of 10 million believers, it's possible that this man would rank number one in terms of knowledge of the Bible and of the Christian worldview. But when he stands before God, will his knowledge of the scriptures save him? This man who spent decades preaching the gospel, traveling thousands of miles to give a defense of the faith, winning converts around the world and selling millions of books is accused of using his spiritual gravitas for the purpose of predatory abuse. Will the divine judge show partiality toward this man for the sake of his impressive credentials? So can we be saved by our knowledge of the word? And will God show partiality on judgment day? While we're not the judge of anyone, thank God, These are some of the questions that God's Word addresses today. This morning, uh, we will talk about man's conscience and God's impartiality. Now, will you turn there with me to Romans chapter 2 or open it up in a Bible app on your phone? And as you do, I want to level with you guys. I love the book of Romans, love it. Uh, But this is a frustrating chapter to preach on. I mean, you just heard it read aloud, right? And the problem with preaching through Romans a few verses at a time, or even a chapter at a time, is that sometimes Paul's arguments are complicated, and they span multiple chapters. So when we zoom in on 10 verses here or 30 verses there, we're in danger of wrenching those verses so out of context that we end up causing more confusion than clarity. So let's do the patient work here on the front end of setting Romans 2 in its wider context. Last week, Pastor John said that the gospel is like penicillin for our sin-sick souls, that Christ's death and resurrection are the God-given vaccination against a wrathful judgment. And Paul spends the next two chapters in Romans, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, and we're not even there yet, convincing both Jew and Gentile alike that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, all are in need of this gospel medicine. So as we look at Romans 2 today, remember that we're catching the Apostle Paul mid-argument. In Romans 1, he made the case that the entire Gentile world stands condemned before a holy God because of their idolatry and degenerate behavior. But here in chapter 2, Paul shifts his focus to his Jewish brethren. 
And they might have been feeling pretty good about themselves after Paul took all these pagans to task. But they soon find out that the message cuts both ways. Look down with me, if you would, at Romans 2, verse 17. Paul writes to his Jewish brethren, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, that is the law of Moses, and boast in God, that sounds like a good thing, right? Verse 19, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, in other words, those foolish Gentiles, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, and here's where Paul sort of turns the tables, he asks, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In other words, do you think it's enough to have the right viewpoint on moral issues, to check all the right boxes in your armchair debates, and then to turn around and transgress them? Is it enough to simply have the law without putting it into practice? This is an important question for baptized Christians, too. Because verse 13 says, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul's point to his Jewish brethren couldn't be made more plainly. Being a judge of evil will not save you if you yourself, quote, practice the very same things. Verse 1. Boasting about possessing the law will not save you if you, quote, dishonor God by breaking it. Verse 23. And outward circumcision will not save you unless the Holy Spirit circumcises your heart. Verse 29. Now that's the general message of this chapter, and it fits Paul's overall argument in this first section of Romans that both the licentious Gentiles, chapter 1, and his hypocritical Jewish brethren, chapter 2, stand in equal need of, the, of God's saving power, chapter 3. So if, if we were to read chapter 2 on its own, we might be led to the mistaken conclusion that some people will be saved on the basis of their works. And this is something that Paul emphatically refutes in the next chapter. Now it's true, part of Paul's point here is that true faith always leads to good works done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a theme he'll pick up later again in chapter 6 and chapters 8. But the main thrust of chapter 2 is about the inevitability of God's judgment on both Jew and Gentile alike because of their sinful deeds. Paul is not yet focused on God's gift of salvation by grace through faith. And we'll get to that in chapter 3. The point is, if we want to engage with Romans responsibly, we need to read it within the theological flow of each section. In fact, I urge you all, um, during your devotional times over the next week or two, just to read all of Romans 1 through 4 as a unit. It'll take you about 20 minutes. And after that, uh, the next day, move on to chapters 5 through 8 as a unit, followed by 9 through 11, and then 12 to the end. And if you do this, maybe if you do this twice, I promise that you'll come away with a much clearer understanding of the gospel. So I just want to encourage you, take some time in your quiet time, and I hope you still have those, to read Romans in sections and follow along 
with Paul's reasoning. But having established the place of Romans 2 in Paul's wider argument about man's universal need for God's saving intervention, I want to highlight two parenthetical uh, but nonetheless significant points that Paul also makes in this chapter about the conscience of man and the impartiality of God. The first point is that man is equipped with a God-given conscience. We already learned last week that men are, quote, without excuse when it comes to having a basic knowledge of God. And here we learn that men are also equipped with a basic knowledge of right and wrong. According to Romans 1.20, this basic knowledge of God comes through, quote, the things that have been made. So just as the intricate design of a clay pot points to the intentionality of a potter, or the ingenuity of a watch points to a watchmaker, likewise, the almost infinitely improbable orderliness of the universe points us to a creator. This is what philosophers refer to as the teleological argument for the existence of God, which sounds fancy, but it's really a common sense argument if you think about it. But another equally common sense aspect of the gospel, in fact, even more so, is that all people are equipped by this creator with a basic knowledge of right and wrong, an inner moral compass, you might say. For this reason, the pagan peoples of the world can be held morally responsible even though they didn't receive the law, the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments. Paul explains in Romans 2.14, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, now see, morality is grained into our very nature as human beings, so when these Gentiles by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. This is what C.S. Lewis refers to in the opening chapters of Mere Christianity as the law of human nature that our consciences testify to the reality of a moral law, and at the same time, to the fact that we all, from time to time, break this moral law. Conscience is a basic ingredient of biblical anthropology, an essential element of our humanness. And while it's not as morally accurate as the written law that came to the Jews by special revelation, nevertheless... Verse 15 testifies that there is a correspondence between the two. It says that even these pagan Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the Jews have the law of Moses as well as conscience and the Gentiles have conscience alone, the law of human nature. But the point is that neither group will be able to plead ignorance on the last day. Now, we don't talk much about conscience nowadays, but the New Testament church talked about it all the time. For example, throughout Paul's ministry in Acts and the Epistles, he often spoke about the importance of maintaining a clear conscience. Peter talked about the obligation on all Christians to maintain a good conscience toward the watching world, 1 Peter 3.16. In several places throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul highlights the importance of having a well-informed conscience, that is, a conscience that's in alignment with biblical truth. Similarly, Hebrews 5 talks about how the Word of God is able to train, quote, our powers of discernment 
by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the idea is that our moral growth as Christians doesn't happen automatically. It depends on constant practice and applying the scriptures to complex life circumstances. Recently, Carissa and I were watching the show The Good Place on Netflix. And if you haven't seen it, it's sort of an outlandish comedy set during the afterlife. But it also has a lot to say about the moral standards that cause people to go to the good place or the bad place after they die. And afterwards, uh, Chris and I were saying to each other, wow, if people allowed this show to inform their basic understanding of morality, they would come away very confused. And, and the problem is not that the show is totally off when it comes to morality. After all, the writers have a God-given conscience and are not totally clueless. The problem is that the show is simply a reflection of the spirit of our age. It's an example of the modern secular conscience on display without any guidance from Scripture. And sadly, there are many church-going people today whose consciences have been formed more so by Netflix than by Holy Scripture. The proper stewardship of our consciences is a serious matter of discipleship. Paul even warns in the pastoral epistles about religious leaders whose consciences have been defiled or seared, implying that people can sort of fry the motherboard of their conscience by consistently doing what they know is wrong. And I think we all know what Paul is talking about. This, for example, is what I believe pornography does to the human brain. It not only slimes us and defiles us, but it, it actually dulls our consciences in other areas of our life. This is how someone can secretly cheat on their spouse and still kiss their kids at night. And this is what happens to these high-profile religious leaders who fall into financial or sexual scandal. And it's the same with politicians, too. They've seared, literally cauterized their conscience through repeatedly and secretly doing the opposite of what they preach, often through convincing themselves that the rules somehow conveniently don't apply to them. It's through such hypocrisy that Christians bring public disrepute, disrepute to God's name. As verse 23 and 24 says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Therefore, I want to offer a pastoral word. If you're in some kind of position of visible Christian leadership and you have a secret sin addiction, be it alcohol, pornography, or worse, I encourage you to take a step back from public ministry for a time in order to rehabilitate your conscience. God can handle the ministry without you, okay? Uh, make the proper confessions. Seek help from some mature brothers and sisters in Christ and receive God's grace and healing. That's what repentance looks like. If you've been living with cognitive dissonance for a long time, it can become difficult to know which way is up and down, morally speaking. So take care lest you fall into ruin and bring others along with you. So we've said that all human beings are equipped with a God-given conscience and that our consciences must be stewarded with care. 
because we're all accountable to God. And that brings us to the second point that I want to look at from this passage. It's insistence that God is an utterly impartial judge. There will be, simply speaking, no possibility of a miscarriage of justice. With God, every verdict will be 100% impartial and 100% just on the last day. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. It says, on that day, quote, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. In other words, God's judgment will not be based on racial bias or ethnic privilege or anything of that kind. Now, there's a deep discussion in our country right now about the extent that implicit racial bias and the lack of minority judges affects our justice system. Well, it's important for us to know that these distinctions will not be a factor on the last day. Notice how Paul keeps the order the same, the Jew first and also the Greek, regardless of whether he's talking about eternal punishment or eternal rewards which communicates a sense of symmetry and equality in the verdicts that God renders. On that day, there will be neither inherent bias nor overcompensation. In fact, God's all-knowing judgment will not be based on outward appearances at all. In verse 16, Paul talks about that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Therefore, every bit of evidence, even the hidden secrets of men, will be brought into the light. But there are two other important observations to make about verse 16. The first is that God's final judgment is actually a part of the gospel. Did you catch that? On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. In other words, if you don't believe in hell... You don't really believe in the gospel. And friends, there's only one gospel. Paul calls it my gospel because he's a chosen herald of the message, not because it is particular to him or invented by him. It's those who wish to deny final accountability before God that are inventing messages. As John Stott puts it, we cheapen the gospel if we represent it as deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and other felt needs, instead of as a rescue from the coming wrath. You know, you don't need to tell me that there are many people today who consciously or unconsciously deny the reality of final judgment. Perhaps some of you are in the camp this morning. Perhaps You have been deceived by the devil into thinking that this life is all that there is. Sometimes people come to this mistaken idea by the false prophets of the liberal denomination, sometimes by the wishful thinking of our modern age, and sometimes, as the confession in the Book of Common Prayer puts it, we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. But regardless, guys, anyone who claims to follow Jesus must reckon with the fact that Jesus taught about the reality of hell more than anyone else in Scripture. Right? He believed it. He wept over it. He warned people about it. 
And that brings me to a second important observation about verse 16, that God, quote, judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus himself will be the decisive agent. The judge of the world is also its savior. The one who decides our fate is also the one who died for us. This creedal truth, affirmed again and again throughout Scripture, should be a source of immeasurable comfort for us. I know this was the case for me. When I was investigating the different religions and philosophies of the world in college, before I'd really committed to Christianity, I remember it was the idea of hell that was probably the biggest barrier for me to belief. I just didn't want it to be true. And in God's special mercy toward me, he gave me this miraculous dream one night. And you can ask me how I know that it was from God later. But for now, the important thing to know is that it was a dream about the last days and final judgment. And Jesus was there. Jesus was the judge, just as the scriptures testify. And I met him and even asked him a question about the final destiny of two of my friends. And I went away from that meeting, guys, being utterly convinced that Jesus was pure love and goodness, but also that his judgments were utterly just. So what I had such a hard time trusting in my waking life, God revealed to me in a dream. Now, I wouldn't normally bring my dreams into a Sunday sermon, but I made an exception here for this reason, because these things that I'm saying here are things we can know about Jesus without the aid of miraculous dreams. The burden of final judgment, who's in, who's out, doesn't rest on our shoulders. We're called to share the gospel, but Jesus is the judge. But we know that he will be utterly good and utterly impartial on the last day. And that's a pillow that we can rest our heads upon at night when doubts creep in and we're not sure that we like this whole thing. When it comes to the New Testament, some theologians have mentioned this law-gospel dynamic at work, where we need to face the law which condemns us before we can receive the gospel that saves us. And that may have some truth in it, but when I look at Romans, I actually see a different order of operations. Because Paul actually begins by announcing the gospel. That our salvation comes from believing in the sin-bearing and death-defeating work of Jesus the Messiah, not from our own righteous track record. Only then does he move on to our accountability to the law, and finally, to a deeper explanation of the good news. So the order isn't law-gospel, it's actually gospel-law-gospel. Right? It's almost like Paul knows that we're going to need some sort of assurance of the love of God before we plunge into an explanation of his righteous judgment. And this is what knowledge that Jesus is the judge did for me. Because as I came to know him, as I came to know the person of Jesus Christ through his word and through his cross and by the spirit, it gave me the moral and personal assurance I needed in order to receive the rest of the message. Jesus was the key to the door that, that opened up the rest of the whole message for me. And I wonder how many of you have had that experience. 
In the meantime, friends, we wait for his coming. And as we await the second advent of this utterly good and impartial judge, it's not just the first century Jewish people, but we ourselves who should be sobered by the questions that Paul asks in verse 3 and 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Amen.